watchers in the fourth dimension. I am usually referred to as the master. Look, I said I don't want any tea today, thank you. I wasn't here. I'd just gone out to fetch some cocoa. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley, you ham-fisted bun vendor. This episode, we're kicking off Season 8 with the return of an old enemy in terror of the badly used CSO. Uh, I mean, terror of the Autons. But first, a quick look at the mail that's come in since we last recorded, which is in the hands of Riley. As a reminder, we record a few episodes in advance, and our most recently released episode at the time of recording this was on the Ambassadors of Death. Anyway, over to you, Riley. Thank you. Alan Seiler on Facebook says... So far, the gang's reactions to Pertwee's first season hasn't been as enthusiastic as I expected. Each story has been rated lower than I would have thought. I'm really looking forward to seeing how you will all rate the next one. Also, I'm with Riley. Thank you. I'm a big fan of opening credits for all the reasons he stated. I mean, you don't always need lengthy narratives like on Gilligan's Island, The Nanny, or HR Puffin stuff, but a good opening theme and title sequence goes a long way to setting a tone of expectation and getting the viewer ready to immerse in the experience. I don't even skip intro when I'm watching Star Trek Enterprise. Alan has faith of the heart, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who 60s, 70s, and 80s says, I really enjoyed your Ambassadors podcast. I wonder how long it would take for you to mention the music. And it was about five minutes by my reckoning. <laughs> it definitely struck us. L. Dangle Eason, I'm going to mispronounce that, my apologies, says, Another classic beloved in my youth, but looking back is quite dry and by the numbers. I can agree with that as well. J.M. Casey from Facebook says, I really like a lot of the things about this story. It leaves me asking loads of questions, like why we never heard from this particular batch of aliens again. The ending is maybe a bit anticlimactic, but the build-up to get there is great, and I enjoy most of the characters, as well as the conspiracy thriller feel the story has, which is something the Pertwee era would visit again and again. I can't remember if it was Don or Riley. It was me <laughs> who described Spearhead at times as feeling kind of proto-X-Files, but I think this story is where that feel really comes to the fore. I have great memories of reading the novelization as a kid, and unlike the Solarians, the TV sto story doesn't disappoint in comparison. So they had some comments regarding the title sequence that Anthony really enjoyed. The rest of us, not so much. The responses we got were one from Doctor Who's 60s, 70s, and 80s again says that Anthony is totally correct. The ambassador's <laughs> title card complete with accompanying twang is absolutely iconic. Yes. Soul Deed says legendary title cards. And Casabarosa says these title cards are awesome. I'm totally with Anthony on this one. There is Woo. no coincidence that Anthony picked these specific responses for the mail. I think you left out my comment. <laughs> <laughs> You don't count, Don. You're on the show. <laughs> <laughs> but Nathan Laws agrees with the rest of us and says it was a thing they did once and they realized it was a mistake. No biggie. And that's the mail. Back to you. All right. Thank you, Riley. And as a reminder, we love to hear from our listeners. So if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at watches4d at gmail.com or you can do what everyone in today's mail did and find us on either Facebook, Instagram or Twitter at at watches4d. Moving on to our behind-the-scenes segment, there's quite a lot to cover here as we move into another soft reboot of the show, just one year after the last soft reboot. Barry Letts had been appointed as producer roughly midway through production of Season 7, and more or less had to execute on his predecessor's vision for the show. In February 1970, Doctor Who was formally renewed by the BBC for an eighth season, providing Letts with an opportunity to make his own mark on the show. 
First off, the show received a much higher budget than for the previous season, allowing Letts and script editor Terence Dix to avoid the lengthy seven-part serials that characterised season seven. This would also give the show more first nights by enabling the season to be split into five stories rather than four, and those first nights were something that both Letts and the BBC head of serials Ronnie Marsh believed provided a boost to the show's ratings. Next, Letts and Dix decided that the Doctor needed a new assistant. Letts is on record as having said that he felt that Liz Shaw was too independent and too intelligent to be forced to play second fiddle to the Doctor, and he also wanted to soften the unit environment. He had enjoyed the dynamic that he had been able to play with when he directed The Enemy of the World, with the Doctor having both a male companion and a female companion. With that in mind, our dynamic duo developed two new characters, Joe Grant, who they envisaged as a more charming and less science-orientated character than Liz, and Captain Mike Yates, the Brigadier's second-in-command, replacing the revolving door of captains from Season 7. Letts and Dix also felt that this new pairing presented the possibility of romantic involvement between the two characters. <laughs> I heard that sigh, Julie. <laughs> I'm so sorry, I was trying to hold out. <laughs> the production team also felt that the show needed a new dynamic to bring in new viewers, and they decided to give the Doctor his very own nemesis, providing a Moriarty to his homes. They hoped that this new villain would replace the Daleks at the very forefront of the show's pantheon of villains. It was decided that this character should have a similar background to the Doctor, that of being a renegade Time Lord, but in this case, one with tendencies towards evil. Drawing on the academic inferences of the name The Doctor, they decided to call this new character The Master. Now, with the building blocks for the new season in place, Let's and Dix looked to lock down their cast. Unsurprisingly, John Pertwee was the first to be contracted for the new season, signing on in March 1970. Nicholas Courtney and John Levine, Sergeant Benton, were contracted in April and June, respectively. For the part of the master, Letts had only one name in mind, Roger Delgado, with whom he had worked during his own acting days. Delgado himself has a rather interesting background. With a full name of Roger Caesar Marius Bernard de Delgado Torres Castillo Roberto, try saying that when drunk, he was born in London to a Spanish father and a French mother. He started acting in 1939, but soon joined the British Army to serve in World War II, where he rose to the rank of Major. Following the end of the war, he returned to acting and made his television debut in 1948. Prior to joining Doctor Who, he appeared in the TV version of Quatermass 2, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Danger Man, The Saints, The Champions, The Avengers, and yes, Don, also Zed Cars. I was going to ask. That's awesome. Yep, he made it. Sadly, he passed away in 1973 when involved in a car crash in Turkey. Auditions for the new unit characters began in June 1970. Letts' first choice for the role of Mike Yates was a gentleman by the name of Ian Martyr who proved to be unavailable, but fear not, we shall see Mr. Martyr on the show at a later time. Letts quickly turned to his second choice, Richard Franklin, whom he had recently seen in a West End play, and he was contracted on June 1st, 1970. Like many others at the time, he had prior credits on Dixon of Doc Green, The Saint, and Crossroads. And Doctor Who gave him some serious sci-fi cred, and he would later go on to appear in Blake 7 and Rogue One, the Star Wars movie. Now, for Joe Grant, around 50 actresses were auditioned. Katie Manning was one of the final candidates. She was late to the audition, having gone to the wrong building, and forgot her reading glasses and was unable to read the scripts that were given to her. Letts and Dix were actually kind of charmed by her improvised, scatterbrained audition, and gave her a callback for the next day, and offered her the part following that. Pertwee concurred with this decision, having met her at the BBC some months earlier, and she was contracted on July 3rd. 
To script this soft reboot, Letts and Dix once again turned to Robert Holmes, who most recently penned the previous soft reboot, Spearhead from Space. In addition to introducing the new characters, Dix asked Holmes to include a return appearance for the Autons and the Nestine Consciousness, something that Holmes was reluctant to do as he actively disliked recycling old monsters, preferring instead to devise new concepts. However, he reluctantly agreed to the demands and started working on the story, initially entitled The Spray of Death, which was later changed to Terror of the Autons. Let's decided to direct the story himself. Now, the BBC normally prohibited a producer from directing episodes of his own show, but this was something that Let's had negotiated permission to do into his own contract. Unfortunately, he was also a very, very keen advocate of the nascent CSO technology. Let's had to improvise a lot during filming, as there were a number of medical issues on set during the first block of filming. Katie Manning, unable to see without her glasses, fell and badly sprained her ankle and had to be taken to hospital. On the same day, stuntman Terry Walsh, who was playing one of the Auton policemen, fell further down an escarpment than planned when he was hit by a unit jeep, but was actually able to finish the scene, and the scene you see in there is what actually happened with that. And additionally, Nicholas Courtney arrived on set one day in really bad shape, having experienced a bout of severe depression the night before that resulted in insomnia, and he was excused from filming for most of the day so that he could seek out medical assistance. Wow. That is um, quite a, a few days of filming. Anyway, joining Let's behind the scenes on this one, Dudley Simpson returns as composer, a role he will fulfill for the entirety of the season. Ian Watson returns as designer for the second time, having previously worked on season sixes of The Space Pirates. And finally, as costumer, Ken True makes his debut. He will work on nine different Doctor Who productions, all the way through to 1993's 30th anniversary skit, Dimensions in Time. With that enormous amount of behind-the-scenes detail out of the way, my voice is getting tired, so we're going to move on to our short summary, which is with Julie this time round. Alright, sorry guys, no singing this time. We start the new season by visiting the circus. Why? Because we needed some plot exposition and a dramatic entrance by the master, and yes, everyone, we finally get the good old Mr. Delgado as one of our favourite Doctor villains. And hey, we get mind control, yet again. Joe Grant is introduced as a new companion who the Doctor wants to dismiss since she's not a scientist. She also doesn't set a good impression messing up the Doctor's experiment by putting it out a fire like any normal person would. The Master then puts out a homing beacon for our favorite nestings, which of course brings the Doctor to the Beacon Hill Research Establishment. We then get Mr. Floating Time Lord, who is just nice enough to warn the Doctor that the Master's on Earth. The Master then starts his game of cat and mouse with the Doctor, starting with rigged explosions. Dear Joe decides that she will try to help the Doctor and unfortunately gets mind controlled by the master because that's the only way to make the plot work. She then tries to kill the doctor with yet another bomb planted by the master. Master also finds out that Mr. Farrell Sr. is a risk so he plants a creepy AF doll in the back of his car because that's not suspicious or anything. <laughs> surprise, surprise, the creepy AF doll kills him. Hey, look, the circus back, just as a, another trap for the doctor, where he gets saved by Joe and steals the master's TARDIS. Yay! Just to be kidnapped by more Autons. Boo! Should have the quarry where our new man Yates is smart enough to run an Auton over with a car and make a quick getaway. The Doctor makes yet another attempt to run away on the TARDIS, only to find it's not compatible with the latest upgrade. We now get more creepy dolls that hand out very lovely daffodils. Seems very suspicious to me. Back in the Doctor's lab, we get yet more attempts on their lives. Small creepy doll attacks Joe, and the Doctor almost strangles to death from a telephone wire. 
We find out those lovely daffodils spray out liquid, quick-drying plastic when certain frequency are hit, and so now we know how to save the day. We then hear the Master's total plan, which makes no sense other than world domination with the help of the Nestians, and the Doctor and Joe go with him for reasons. We then get a high-speed chase with a bus and units in which Doctor and Joe escape when young Feral finally flips and wildly takes over. Doctor and the Master team up to stop the Nestians, but the Master escapes after sending young Feral to his doom. And we're done. (laughs) Thank you, Julie. (laughs) That was accurate. (laughs) (laughs) That doll. I'm sorry. The dolls, I'm going to have a lot of things to say. Oh, Oh, we'll get there. I'm excited. We will get there. All right. Episode one. Can I just say how much I hate seeing those big cats looking so sad right at the beginning (laughs) in the cages? They knew more mind control was coming. They did. (laughs) I have never been to the circus. And at this point, I will never go to the circus. It traumatized you that much? I've never been. Oh, you mean this? Yes, that you'll Uh, never go. I mean, I know how circuses work. I'm not super impressed by how that all works, and I'm good with not being involved in one. Yeah, that's fair. So the master being introduced to the audience, the first thing you notice is that, you know, going into it with a blank slate like people would back then, first thing they hear is those TARDIS noises. So immediately the audience is keyed in that this person is either a Time Lord or someone who has stolen a TARDIS or any sort of vehicle from a Time Lord. It's not a completely solved mystery. There is still some question remaining as to who he is, but they already provide a lot of information immediately as to who this character is. I love the fact that he dresses like a Bond villain. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That Neru jacket is bomb. You mentioned how they wanted him to take the place of the Daleks in the show. I can just imagine British school children all getting Nero jackets to play with. (laughs) There was a kid I was at school with because we all had to wear, when we got into our final two years of, of high school, we had to wear suits for sixth form. And I did know one kid who got himself a Nehru jacket. It was awesome. And I was very jealous because I thought <laughs> he looked like the master. That's awesome. We hear the master's TARDIS. We see him. He comes out. He hypnotizes someone and they steal something. So we're introduced to him very, very quickly. And then when we cut to the doctor in his lab at unit, we see the TARDIS exterior for the first time since Spearhead. So I feel like, Don, I recall you saying that you just wanted your show back. And here we're getting a lot more comfort of this is still Doctor Who. We're getting a reminder of Doctor Who. A reminder. Yes. And one thing before we get to the doctor, I'm tired of mind control. (laughs) Yeah. I'm already tired of it. I don't like it because it's a very lazy form of writing. Yeah. And unfortunately, hypnosis is one of the master's things. So we're going to get quite a lot of it. Which is really annoying because when we think of Doctor Who, we think of the Doctor, we think of clever ideas and plans to solve problems. If the Master is supposed to be his Moriarty, you would hope that he would have some sort of clever wits to fight the Doctor with. Instead, he just, you know, any sort of situation, oh, here's a problem with a person, mind control him. Problem with this other person, gotta get this done, mind control him. We'll get there, but the Master's plan in this is candidly ill thought out and he doesn't come across as a moriarty to me he comes across as more of a trickster who's just here to screw with the doctor than to actually take over the world or anything like that that's the only part of him i think that shines is his just constant needling and antagonizing the doctor with his little tricks mm-hmm. but there isn't any grand chessboard strategy going on between the two of them yeah The next new character that we're introduced to is Joe. So Liz has been carted off to Cambridge off screen. Boo. 
And the doctor just is unhappy at the existence of Joe. And I don't blame him because I am unhappy for him. Because I disagree wholeheartedly with these producers and all these guys who are saying that we need someone unintelligent, we'll say, to play the companions because having someone who's too independent and too smart doesn't make for a good story and I am insulted. As well you should be. Yeah. The thing is, I don't hate Joe. She seems nice and plucky, which is good, but Liz was just mm-hmm. so much better. And I'm going to be the one to breach the subject. I don't know why anyone would want to be a companion of this doctor at this point in time. In every scene he's in, he is a smug asshole. And it completely (laughs) rubs me the wrong way. And I'm hoping later on we get a more doctorly doctor. But right now I'd rather spend time with the master. (laughs) Yeah, the way he calls her a ham-fisted bun vendor and mistakes her for the tea lady, it feels very classist. Yes. Yes, and then she also had been trained in so many things. Like, she lists off all those items that she's been trained for, and he's like, that doesn't matter. And it's just, it's so frustrating. That said, the Brigadier totally has the Doctor's number on this. He's like, hey, if you want her gone, you gotta fire (laughs) her yourself, buddy. I did like that. That was really fun. Let's not be too harsh on the Doctor. His red smoking jacket is amazing. I do like that. Yeah, And then there's other things that happen with his other jacket because it turned from red to blue. But we'll get there. (laughs) He got changed. It happens. For one episode. For one episode. That's what makes no sense. Did anyone notice the interesting camera angles that were used in the laboratory with Joe and the doctor? It was like a slightly angled shot above them. That was like tilted down, looking down at them slightly. It was a complete different look for your typical Doctor Who set. Keep everything flat, you know, no angles, everything on the same level. It was really interesting uh, shots there. And I enjoyed it. It was a good change. I didn't notice it, but now you mention it, it kind of rings a bell and I don't disagree. All right. Also, Mike Yates. I feel like he's kind of in the background here because the focus is very much on introducing Joe and the master. It's kind of refreshing to see a a new member of the unit crew who's going to be a regular. And I did notice that the unit uniform has been changed more to that of the regular British Army, which I think is probably a good move. I noticed the change of uniform. I'm questioning, and I'm really bad at military ranks, but captain's above sergeant, right? Why didn't we just promote Benton? More Benton. More Benton. (laughs) Okay, a sergeant is a rank of a non-commissioned officer, and captain is a commission. So Benton has kind of come up through the ranks and is a bit more of a squaddy, whereas being a commissioned officer is kind of almost a class thing. At this time, the (sighs) British Army in particular drew its officers from the private school system system and so they would have had very very different backgrounds okay but i would still have liked more benson yeah i don't mind yates yates wasn't actually that bad i actually was pretty okay with him but i was just wondering why we just didn't get more of benton we will get plenty of both of them over the next few seasons and benton even gets promoted later on yay can we move on to beacon hill yes and the oddest introduction of two characters (laughs) i have ever seen Uh The scientists? The scientists, where one is there about to eat his lunch, the other one comes in. It's obviously been some time since they spoke to each other, and one just starts talking about eggs and the effects on his digestion. (laughs) Not a hello, nothing, just the immediate going in to TMI. 
<laughs> also, isn't one of them their name is Googe? Yes, one yep. of them's name is Googe. <laughs> so at this point, I haven't seen any of you in person in about 18 months, except for Riley for about 10 minutes when dropping something off. So Don, the next time I see you, I'm just going to start talking about eggs. Because I did mention this in a chat we had going, no one responded to me, so I can only assume that all three of you think that is the most normal thing in the world. <laughs> it's a standard greeting back mm -hmm. home. <laughs> that explains so much. So I'm going to talk about, one, we can talk about the CSO, right? That's what it's called? Yep. Uh -huh. And how bad it is. Oh my god. It's not great, and it's noticeable in so many scenes, which I find interesting. And... <laughs> I'm going to call it out again. Why did we have the doctor change his coat from red to blue, but then in the next episode, it's back to being red again? Continuity is for suckers. Yeah. He spilled some egg salad down it. <laughs> we That's had to it. get it dry cleaned. Those, those cursed eggs again. I just found it really weird. I questioned why that was done. I guess they probably didn't have someone on set that was worried about continuity. I must admit, I was so distracted by the random floating Time Lord that I did not really <laughs> notice his jacket. The Time Lord shows up in a morning suit and bowler hat. I mean, he's dressed as a banker. What? Yes. Why? He was trying to blend in. But he's floating. He has no TARDIS. I'm sure there is a line of books and novels and audio <laughs> things trying to explain this, but... You know, I'm not sure that there is. Oh, God. Hang on. I got to get my agent on the line. We got we to gotta take care of that. <laughs> Big finish. <laughs> Be ready. Dear listener, if we're wrong, please let us know. The funniest thing about the Time Lord floating around and having his conversation with the Doctor is the Doctor telling him that he looks ridiculous in those clothes. And this is the uh -huh. Doctor who, as we talked about before, lifted his look from a guy coming from the opera. So Yeah. Questionable. Yeah. All right. Very, very quickly, we get into the Master just screwing with the Doctor, laying traps. His horrible method of killing Googe by shrinking him with what I think we, I don't think it's mentioned in this story, but we later know is referred to as the um, tissue compression eliminator. It's just brutal. He is taking no prisoners this early. Yeah. And I kind of love that they don't actually meet face to face until much later in the story. They're just kind of dancing mm -hmm. around each other for a couple of episodes. That I do agree with. Yeah. And apparently the master can miniaturize people as well. Yeah, that's the compression thing. It kills them. Uh, they don't wind up just as tiny people, <laughs> which might have been worse for Googe because he's been trapped in his lunchbox with the scent of the egg, <laughs> and that's how he died. Yeah, the big finish story that Julie and I just did has people actually being shrunk and still being alive. So, mm. yeah, uh, you know, yep. small differences. As we wrap up episode one, one of the things that really struck me, and you already talked about how why would a companion, why would anyone want to be a companion of this doctor, is when the doctor explains to Joe what a cephalopod is, and he like grabs her chin, and it's just such the such a demeaning thing to do. And I couldn't wrap my head around whether like you know obviously right there he would never ever ever do that to Liz. Ever. No, not no. at all. And I was thinking, what is the show trying to emphasize here with that interaction? Are they trying to emphasize the age difference? Because at the time, so. she was 27 years younger than Pertwee at the time. Or is there a little bit of sexism there too? Or is it both? Both. Both? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure she was always 27 years younger than Pertwee. Right, right. <laughs> not just at the time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I couldn't help but, but yes. get pedantic there. <laughs> but yes, it, it, it had to be both. Oh, that was good. It really had to be. There's some sexism. There's a condescension because of her age, for sure. I agree with that. 
But it does result in her deciding, I've got to go prove myself. And she heads off to do what every good companion knows they should not do and goes investigating the various plastic factories by herself. It's plucky, but bumbling. And almost immediately gets captured. Yeah, I love that smoldering look that the master gives her. I like her response to being captured. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, oh dear. Oh no. And then we go through the whole scene of all the mind control. With Farrell. That was fun. That was great. And then we get back and she's acting. She still acts weird. That's what I don't get. Is whenever you have these mind control things happen and they're like, act as if we never met. But then immediately they act really odd. Yeah. Like Joe says nothing. And I'm like, it's obvious, guys. And then she just goes to go and open the box, muttering, I've got, well, not muttering, but exclaiming, I've got to open it. I've got to. And punches Yates in the gut. That punch was great. She can't resist the beautiful shiny red button of the bomb. (laughs) All right. And that's our cliffhanger. So episode two. The bomb itself is pretty clear. It's so kind of basic that the master would just hypnotize someone and then bring in a bomb into the laboratory. It's it's pretty clear the master took scheming 101 from Professor Wiley Coyote, <laughs> a smoking a smoking box, and dropping it off in someone and just hoping it goes off. He was the top in his class, though. Yeah, so that is true. At least he didn't have you know an incompetent scientist like Professor Taltalian to handle it. Ah, uh, yeah. Or Dr. Taltalian, I should say. One thing I liked at the intro here is someone used a word I'd only read before, which was struth, exclaimed loudly. It was either Benton or Yates, but it made me laugh pretty hard. That was one my dad used to use a lot when I was growing up. Really? I think to avoid actually cursing. Mm. And you know what I find really frustrating about the mind control and why I really dislike it is because this is how we get introduced to Joe really, is her being hypnotized. And I'm like, that's not a good way to introduce somebody. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to harp on it a lot, guys. I'm sorry. Meanwhile, at the plastics factory, we get a lecture about things that use too much plastic, (laughs) like the chair. So that chair, I had a blow up plastic chair, except instead of being black, it was red and it had the monkey's logo on it. And it was amazing. It also didn't murder you. So it had that going for it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it did. And I'm sorry, they should have made it a little bit more clear as to how he got eaten and suffocated by the chair because he just started to like wiggle his way and then his face was never covered by the chair. So I don't know how that no, worked. No, no. <laughs> I think we're just meant to assume it got to that stage off screen. It's the Ed Wood school of being devoured by something. You just gotta, gotta go with it. This is what I find really weird about this, is we know Barry Letts is a good director. We saw what he did with the enemy of the world. We saw what he did in taking over from Dougie Canfield on Inferno. And what is he doing here? (laughs) It's not great. I'm sorry, but it's not. (laughs) It's not. But it's fun. Oh, God, I'm standing up for this story. It's none of it makes (laughs) sense. I'm not I'm not saying it makes sense. It's not silly. But I had a good time watching it. (laughs) Same, same. I'm with you, Don. It's an enjoyable story, but there were some questionable directorial choices. Yes, yes. Mostly for me with the CSO stuff, especially Mm -hmm. in situations where there was no need for it. Mm -hmm. Where it was just like, really? You couldn't have just, you know, turned the camera on at the place you were already shooting (laughs) in the background? I don't know. 
Yeah. And I do love the master's kind of wit and almost flippancy about the whole situation. When Farrell Sr. shows up and he's asking what happened to McDermott and the master just responds with, he just sat in the chair and just slipped away. (laughs) (laughs) It really is giving zero shits about it. It's quite spectacular. And then basically murdering Farrell Sr. with the doll again. Oh, Oh, the doll. doll. Uh the, the highlight <laughs> of the entire serial. I know it's supposed to be a troll. I kept calling it the devil doll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I call it the evil gingerbread man. To me, I, this is the one big flaw in the master's plan, because theoretically they've made more of these. Marketing is not his strong suit as far as a product that the masses would be no. interested in purchasing. <laughs> That said, when I was growing up, my dad had this like little, I don't know whether it was rubber or plastic, nasty little troll thing. Not like the Norwegian trolls, but like this really ugly little thing that scared the hell out of me. And I think when I was watching this as a kid, this had that effect on me because it was something as ugly as the little thing my dad had. I can see why. So you're basically Troy Barnes from the show Community. (laughs) I just... It was creepy as fuck. I'm sorry. I had to drop it at least once. Boom! That's dull. It's interesting, though. I keep thinking about the evil gingerbread man. I remember I had seen this cereal before, and going into it, I knew, I'm like, oh, this is the one with the evil gingerbread man in it. Get ready. And the thing that strikes me is that how can something, at least to me, be at one point so hilarious looking? But then just a few moments later, it can be very unsettling and then switch back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> it's like some uncanny valley or something it's, where it just kind of goes back. It's amazing. It's more unsettling when it's literally just a doll. When it's moving, when it's clearly a little person in a really yeah. uncomfortable looking costume, that it's funny because then you've got the combination of that, the bad green screen and all mm-hmm. of that. When it's just the doll, you're like, that is so weird well, looking. Why would anyone want that? It's kind of like the weeping angels and like the doll thing where we talked about where it's when you notice that it has moved, but you didn't see it move. Mm -hmm. It's more unsettling than if you actually physically see it move. That's true. And that's definitely where I'm at with this. I did. Mm -mm. I did really like how the master basically just throws it in his car. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, why didn't a why didn't it just kill him on the highway? And B, why didn't he just throw it out the window? Because there's no way he would have brought that in. Sorry. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's temperature activated. It was heading to kill him and then he opened the window. So that's why it didn't kill him in the car. But yeah, I, I don't know why he brought it inside. That is weird. Did they change their mind about what activated these things about halfway through? Because the temperature thing seemed valid, then later the doctor says, oh, I guess it's not that, after he uses the Bunsen burner. And then it became the frequency yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, so I think different things are coded to different activation. So the daffodils later are controlled by radio frequencies, whereas the doll was controlled by temperature, and the chair, I don't recall what that was controlled by. Can I just say that I think they really missed a trick by not calling this cereal the daffodils of death? Yes, they did miss a trick with that. So in parallel to everything that's going on with the doll, the doctor, not having learned any lessons from Joe going off on her own, decides to go to the circus on his own. First off, there's no reason for the circus to even be in this story. Nope. Exactly. I can't wrap my head around it. I don't, I mean, is it just because it's just, they don't, they don't want to have them show up at another factory or I know something? why it was there. I did some reading about this serial. It was supposed to have a bigger part because that's where they were going to distribute the troll dolls. 
as like a prize uh, or something. So it was going to have some relevance, but that all got cut. So now you just have a circus setting for no real reason. Okay, that would make sense. Like if they had one of those games that yeah. you play at like a carnival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, makes perfect sense. But with them not doing that, the circus made no sense whatsoever. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen more of it set at the circus because it's not a factory. I do like the interactions between the Doctor and Rossini. You know, he's Mm -hmm. a bit of an asshole to the Doctor, blows cigar smoke in his face, calls him a horse doctor, has his big guy rough him up a little. And then when the Doctor offers him money, he says, gentlemen, never discuss money. And I love the Doctor's response of, to the contrary, gentlemen, never discuss anything else. (laughs) Tony the strong man. Drinks straight from the bottle. No glasses for him. I admire that. Yeah, I do too. I just thought that was a big stereotype right there. And that's all I'll say about that. And the second time that actor has played a big stereotype in Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was Toberman, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, that was Toberman? Oh, man. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Doesn't get any lines. He gets some grunts. (laughs) (laughs) Because that makes that better. That's more than I've ever gotten Doctor Who. (laughs) Yeah. Also, there are a whole bunch of tiny grenades and little bitty bombs everywhere. I'm like, Master, I get it. You want to blow shit up. Calm down. All right. So the doctor, upon escaping, because one of the Master Stooges blew himself up, goes and steals part of the Master's TARDIS, the dematerialization circuit. This obviously has an impact on future stories because it traps the Master on Earth. But just as the doctor comes out, he's attacked by a mob and is rescued by the police. Or is he? Yeah, totally not. We already discussed this. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. some more creepy dolls. It's the Autons as policemen. This scene got a huge number of complaints to the BBC. How so? The British Bobby is generally seen as a little less intimidating than American cops are. (laughs) And the concern here was that this made the police scary. So the people Mm. that kids are meant to trust Uh. are portrayed as potentially not really being police and thus potentially something scary. But I don't think this story just does that with police. Like what this story does, and I think what makes it so fun, is it's constantly taking ordinary things and making them scary dolls police plastic flowers blow up chairs like anything like ordinary objects suddenly scary i did think that them being attacked by the mob was pretty brutal yeah the mob part was a bigger threat than being dressed up as police right as we move into episode three what was the reason for the autons looking so different was there a production Mm. reason for that no i think just a different costumer Mm. i also have a question If they just out and out say, we're headed to a quarry, does that count as a quarry? Because it's not trying to be something else. Yeah, it counts for quarry quarry. Quarry quarry! (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome. I've been waiting so long for us to get back to some quarries, and I know we get a good amount with the third doctor. So happy to be back. Uh. All right, episode three. Okay, this is the first action scene that I have liked in a long time. Unfortunately, someone almost got seriously injured because of it. Maybe that's why it looked so good. But it was not just to shoot them up. So there was some interesting things going on. The Autons were dangerous. They had their little hand flip guns that I like. It was actually a good action scene. Yeah, and it's Yates with that hero move knocking Terry Walsh down the hill with the car. Yeah. 
And this is where I was concerned because we saw one of the unit soldiers get shot. Since Benton barely had anything to do in this serial, I was like, no, let it not be Benton. I don't want him to die. Luckily, that's not the case. But I was worried there for a second. So we saw Lethbridge, Stewart, Yates and Benton arrive in a really crappy looking car. (laughs) The unit budget all went to those new uniforms. No more vehicles. But there were clearly other unit soldiers there. Did we see them arrive or did they just kind of appear? They disappeared. Okay. That's what I thought. I didn't recall seeing them. They were in the boot. One thing we haven't talked about much so far is the music. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a big fan of the music because it doesn't necessarily fit with a lot of things. There's a lot of synth used. And if synth isn't used in the right way for the right things, it just sounds dated. And it does, because at the time, that was the new hotness. So they were going to throw that over everything. Yeah. It sounds dated because it is dated, but that doesn't mean it's good. (laughs) Yes. And I do think that there were some parts that fit the scene, so it's not all bad, but it just sounds dated. I really like the master's theme. Yeah, I think that's one of Mm. the only things that I kind of liked. And we're going to kind of see that as a repeated motif every time he shows up (gasps) in the Pertwee era. An actual motif that lasts for multiple serials? Yeah. Oh my god. Well, now Dudley Simpson is the main composer. I think he scores every single story this season. And I think if he doesn't do every story next season, it's kind of all but one. And he will basically stay in place through the end of the Tom Baker era, more or less. Give or take a season. Okay, that makes me happy. I like when there are themes for characters. And if you're switching out composers for each thing, that's not going to ever happen. So that's exciting. Let's talk again about the Doctor just being a dick. (laughs) (laughs) Lethbridge, Stewart and co have rescued the doctor after he decided to go somewhere on his own stupidly and then back at headquarters he's just needlessly antagonistic towards the brigadier saying things like sometimes I think military intelligence is a contradiction in terms so he's channeling Groucho Marx here Mm -hmm. right after he ran off and got himself captured like a moron yeah and then says he'll apologize later if he has the time. And even Joe calls him out and accuses him of being childish after he tries to escape. It's like, dude, what are you doing? I still think it's really exciting that he couldn't fix it because his TARDIS is out of date. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> what isn't funny, even though the doctor seems to think so, is that the master, who we already know is a repetitive murderer, is also stuck on her. Hilarious. And apparently in none of these various versions of TARDISes do they carry spare parts. Despite a nearly infinite amount of space, eh, why would you carry a spare? You know, going back to what you were saying about the Doctor being a dick to the Brigadier, it just feels like the show is trying to get them into a conflicting relationship that would be good drama, but it's having a difficult time without making either one of them look bad to the audience and not sympathetic. And I guess that's a hard needle to thread to do that, where you can have them both on both sides of a different issue, but you still like and respect each character for what they're standing for. It just makes him come off as completely smug and unlikable. Yeah, it's tough. And it's like they just can't figure out how to do it. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, I really hope that they do some tweaks to his characterization in other serials, because in this one, he's just not enjoyable to watch. I don't root for him. And I think, Don, that's further demonstrated when Mr. Brownrose shows up, the civil servant, and the doctor's just immediately (sighs) antagonistic to him. 
it's clearly mutual until the doctor starts talking about hanging out with his boss, Tubby Rowlands, at the club. That scene bothered me. Knowing Robert Holmes's work, that was meant to be very kind of sarcastic and meant to be making fun of the establishment. Yeah. But instead, the doctor just, because of the way Pertwee... He reads it straight. You know, he reads yeah, it he as reads it, it on the page. If you play it in your head in Troughton's voice, there would be more pauses where the audience would know, oh, he's lying. He's playing this up to get information yeah. out of him. But the way Pertwee plays it, it's like, okay, so you were at the club. You yeah. did know this guy's boss. It seems like he's telling the truth instead of him being, you know, trickster. It makes him seem very, very establishment. Yes. And that doesn't quite sit well. And I think that's purely because Pertwee misreads the line. And it also like ties back into when he's at the circus tied up, the bribery thing. Like, did anyone else get the feel that he actually really was offering a bribe, not that he was trying to use the bribe as a ruse to trick them? Is it because it was just so awkwardly said? Because when I heard this, I'm like, and I was thinking about if the first or second doctor said this, I would immediately think, oh, he's trying to fool them. But for some reason, that reading made it seem like, is he being serious? Does he have cash? Does he have money on him? Is yeah. that what his actual plan is? Mm -hmm. A lot of the nuance is being missed here. It also seemed kind of weird because in, I, I think it was, yes, episode two, he pretty much stole a line from Yates and then messed it up because he, he had a pause where he was trying to remember what the rest of the line was. Yeah, and that felt very, very uncomfortable. I think part of this is the show isn't Pertwee's show anymore. You've got the master being introduced. You've got Yates. It's become more of an ensemble cast. And candidly, I think he's, and you know, I might be misreading this, but I think he's kind of peeved at that. Hmm. And that's why he's hmm. acting up here. Entirely possible. All right. Back on track. We get them acquiring that creepy doll. <laughs> <laughs> and he performs an autopsy yes <laughs> on this doll just to find out that it's just made out of solid plastic joy we were also introduced to the guy fixing the phone Ooh. <laughs> and i immediately the second that i saw this man with the phone i was like something's wrong with the phone 100 percent. i already knew I think they even use the master's motif when it cuts to him. So, I mean, it's early, so it isn't entirely associated with him yet. But if you're rewatching this and you've seen Roger Delgado's performances as the master and you know that's associated with him, you're like, OK, I know what's going on here. So we first get Joe being left alone with the creepy doll and Yates comes to the rescue and we get a little kind of awkward, we'll call it a romantic moment. <clears throat> and so there's that going on. And then the doctor being upset because he finds out the reason why Yates wasn't with Joe at the time was because he was about to make cocoa. <laughs> Using the doctor's Bunsen mm -hmm. burner. How dare he? <sighs> There's a lot of things here that it's just a weird setup for all of these things. Yeah, it's not comfortable. Like, he's pissy at Yates for no good reason. Let's talk about the Autons with the giant heads. <laughs> but they're wearing big masks over their normal heads. Yeah, I thought those masks were terrifying. They're, those are really yeah, creepy. Those are creepy looking. I would not get one of those flowers. They all look like Shoney's big boys. <laughs> <laughs> And I say that not to criticize it. It does look like that. But yes, they were creepy and I actually enjoyed it. But that's what I was thinking about when I saw them. Well, they accomplished the creepiness factor, but they're also trying to hand out flowers. They're not going to be able to hand out as many flowers as they think because I would turn the other way. 
Once again, bad marketing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Why are our percentages of deaths down? Well, you've got ugly dolls. You've got these weird people trying (laughs) to hand out some not great looking daffodils. They need an art department. That's all there is to it. I think the use of the daffodils is smart because at the time you had a lot of promotional campaigns giving out fake flowers. You saw them for charity campaigns as well. And I think it's a very recognizable symbol. But as I said, I would not take one from one of those things. Hell no. All right, we get the payoff of the installation of the longer phone line as the master calls the doctor to say goodbye, which is the first actual interaction between them, and then activates the phone cord, which goes to strangle him. So once again, we're making the ordinary scary, and that leads us into our cliffhanger and episode four. Let's go. Gurning, right? Gurning time. Yep, yep. <laughs> the part we gun. Ooh. There it is. So we're five for five on the part we guns. Got to put them in there somewhere. I'm going to be jumping around here, but I needed to say this. I have been not necessarily a big fan of the Brigadier, but for once, the Brigadier has the right idea and the doctor is wrong. Mm -hmm. Bombing them now in a safe place away from the public is the smartest move. I don't understand how it would be logical any other way. It's the smartest, safest move. I know the doctor's trying to do like, well, I need to understand them thing. Like, this isn't the Silurians. Well, you know what you're dealing with with them. It's a known quantity. They are dangerous. They want to harm people. Knock them out away from the pe- away from public. I can't believe you got through that without saying nuke them from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't disagree with you. I 100% was like, all right, the brig has it right. And then all of a sudden, the doctor's being pissy again. Uh huh. I do think it's a bit overkill to have this dinky little bus blown up by the Royal Air Force. I mean, just grab a bazooka, guys. <laughs> but they wanted to have the shot of the overhead plane flying over. It's fine. And you have to have the dramatic effect of the countdown mm-hmm. of you know, when the bombing run will take place. With the bazooka, they just pull that out of the truck, you know? Yeah, you wouldn't have that tension of the doctor and Joe arriving there and them trying to stop the bomb. It's the only bit of tension that we get in this whole thing. Oh, but we skipped over the awesome daffodil attack. That did look like an aerosol spray that was in Katie Manian's face. I feel so bad. Like, please tell me that was just like aerialized water, right? I mean, because that looked like, oh man, to get that in your face. The spray of death. (laughs) Yes. I have a question on this. It goes onto their face, it attaches, and then it suffocates them. And then he then says that he breathes out and it dissolves because they breathe out carbon dioxide. So how in the world could they even suffocate? Because Mm -hmm. the second they breathe out, it would have disintegrated. I question that. That was confusing. I couldn't figure that out either. Normally, this is the time on the show where I come up with some (laughs) in-universe BS explanation that will work. Not today, folks. Moving on. I was going to try, but I got nothing. Let's talk about the moment when the Doctor and the Master finally meet face to face. Yes. He describes the Master's plan as vicious, complicated, and inefficient. Which I agree. Yes. Mm-hmm. I know when we did Spearhead, we talked a lot about what actually is the plan here. How does this make sense? How does this work? And here we have it laid out a bit more. And I think this was the same plan as Spearhead, which was just to cause massive disruption and then for the Nestines to invade and take over in the confusion. 
I like that it's spelled out here because it was kind of inferred in Spearhead, but not really said. And this just feels cleaner. Yeah, basically, we're going to distract them and then invade. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Half a million deaths. That's not insignificant. Well, it's a better plan from the Estine perspective and things like that. But to the doctor's point, the master didn't think of, do you think they'll distinguish you from everyone else? That's good point. <laughs> master, you're dumb. The doctor doesn't think about things. He doesn't think things through either. He holds up the dematerialization circuit and says, this is why you can't kill me. I'm holding this. And so instead, the master decides, well, give it back or I'll kill Joe. You yeah. haven't thought this through either, Doctor. All right. So can someone also explain to me why the Doctor and Joe go with the master? Hostages? <laughs> yeah, he's threatening to kill them. Yeah, or kill he's Joe. He's got that car cigarette lighter <laughs> pointing at them. It just seemed weird to me. Like, they didn't put up enough of a fight, I guess? I don't know. It just seemed off. Yeah, it all feels a bit rushed towards the end. I think, Julie, you already mentioned the Master backing down on his plan because the Doctor just says, do you really think that thing will distinguish between you and us? I mean, that was weak. It's very weak. You got them on that high-speed chase scene with the bus, which was entertaining, and... Then you got the master running up the tower again. When he pushes that man off, That's that brutal. man did not survive. <laughs> oh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> they called for an ambulance, but that man didn't survive. No way. And he puts Farrell in a rubber mask of himself, leaving Farrell to get killed. Again, that's just brutal. Poor Mrs. Farrell. She loses her husband and her son over the course of this story. Maybe she was a real bad guy. Maybe she wanted to take over the plastics factory on her own. <laughs> Maybe. Big finish. Are you listening? <laughs> All you gotta do is just end the whole thing, cut to her laughing maniacally. Like, oh, this makes so much more sense now. And it's the master pulling off the master's face as a mask, and it was her all along. <laughs> yes. Is Mrs. Farrell all along? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Unsurprisingly, the master escapes to fight another day. Now, again, I've already criticized the doctor's response to the master, given that he's clearly a murderous menace. And the doctor oh. just says, I'm rather looking forward to it. Uh, the concept of the next uh -huh. encounter with the master. Because enough people haven't died off screen. Now, for this one, I actually don't blame Robert Holmes. The original line was around how they would keep fighting until one of them killed the other. And the BBC head of serials, Ronnie Marsh, felt like that was too harsh <laughs> and so asked for it to be changed to this. Really, Ronnie? Really? Yeah. That's, oh, We are all just disposable pawns in the Master mm -hmm. and the Doctor's games on Earth. Doesn't matter what the body count is. Charles Manson is on the loose. I'm rather looking yeah. forward to our next encounter. <laughs> All right, guys, oh. I think that brings us to the end of our discussion. It's time to rate this one. I actually get to start for a change. So we've ragged on this one a lot. There are problems with it. You know, I think the resolution is weak. I think Barry Letts made some very questionable directoral choices when we know he's a good director, or at least can be. But there's still a lot of charm in this one. It's fun. It's enjoyable to watch if you can get past the CSO. Roger Delgado is absolutely magnetic as the master, and I would watch an entire season of him, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> So, despite the problems with this one, I just can't help but enjoy it. It's not up there with Spearhead. I think Spearhead is the superior story. It's very easy to compare the two given their purpose. But I'm going to give this one six and a half giant heads out of ten. Don, on to you. 
I agree with you on almost every count. There's some problems with the story. I don't like the way the doctor is characterized. And I'm very much hoping that we see some changes to that in the future. Otherwise, it's going to be a long few seasons. But I like the way the story just keeps rolling along. It moves quickly. It's only four episodes, so there's a lot less filler. I don't like the fact that our new companion is explicitly a dumb blonde, but she's, you know, kind of plucky, and I think I'm going to get to like her. The CSO drove me nuts, and a lot of times would remind me of the on drugs talking to the parents effect on that 70s show. Anyone is familiar <laughs> with that? For that matter, she kind of reminds me of Midge, so I guess that makes sense if you go to that. But I had a really good time with it. I had more fun watching this one serial with all its problems than I did in the entirety of last season. I'm going to give it 7 out of 10 terribly ugly troll dolls. All right, Julie, you're next. So I had some problems with this one. A lot of it has already been discussed. The issues with the characterization of the Doctor, some of the directorial choices. I don't think that the music was as well done as it has been in the past and while I did like Delgado I'd heard a lot about him and I don't want to say they didn't quite live up to my expectations but I need to see more before I make any judgments on that but in that case I'm going to give it 6.5 not so fun party bus out of 10. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Everyone's worst nightmare for a bachelorette right? (laughs) Oh god. Okay Last but not least, Riley, over to you. This is a repilot, just like they did a season ago. They also used the Autons. It was also a four-episode serial. It's very similar. This serial does a decent job of introducing the Master as the main adversary, but I don't think they did a very good job of introducing Joe. I think there's room for that character to uh, grow. The effects were silly but fun. The music was standard. The pace was brisk. The story wasn't that interesting, but somehow, like everyone else has said, it is enjoyable. I don't know how this, as a whole, it all somehow is fun. So I will give it also six and a half degrees in cosmic science. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And that gives us a story average of 6.63. So uh, that's our third highest of the part we era so far. But with that, we are at the end of the episode, sadly. We will be back next time when Professor Keller introduces us to the mind of evil. But for now, as always, thank you so much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, The Daffodils of Death, was recorded on Wednesday the 18th of August 2021. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watchers4D. And you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, planning is important. Like, really important. Particularly if you're trying to take over the world.